Have you ever seen an embarrassing fall before? I have to admit, in some of the nightmares I've had uh, getting ready for this night, I I thought about taking the steps up here and walking across here. I counted my steps very carefully. I didn't want to make that sort of impression on you this morning. Perhaps the name Vinko Bogatai doesn't really mean much to you, but you might recall seeing him. Vinko was a ski jumper from Yugoslavia who competed in the 1970 World Ski Flying Championships. And one of Vinko's jumps was immortalized by ABC's Wide World of Sports. Remember the opening of that show, a narrator would make this statement. He would say, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. It was during that last part of the phrase, for approximately 10 years in a row, 130 times a year, that Vinko's most embarrassing act was publicly broadcast across the entire nation. Vinko uh, fell down the takeoff ramp. He landed on his head and twisted and tumbled the whole way down the hill. As a matter of fact, when ABC producers saw footage of the fall, they knew very quickly that Vinko's fall was a great picture of defeat for the world. I also remember several years ago now seeing a young lady fall one day when I was teaching a class at Northland. I was in the the lower level of the library building at Northland. It was one of my favorite lecture halls because... Uh, Over the tops of the student's head, there was a large window, and outside of that window, you could see a sidewalk. And uh, most students had forgotten, but on the sidewalk, there was a a spot that would normally get icy. And so as a lecturer, I'd be going through my notes, teaching through my stuff, looking over the heads of of the students and uh, watching students as they'd hit that spot and gather themselves and so on. I remember this young lady, she fell... It's probably our normal response when you fall like that. What's the first thing you do? She got up. She dusted herself up, got got all of her books together, and then she looked around to see if anyone had seen it. That's when I made eye contact with her over the heads of my students. And uh, with a little smirk, I think she realized that I had seen the whole thing. Aren't you glad, though, that for the most part... Our spiritual failures are not publicly broadcast for others to see. This morning, I want to answer the question, how we should handle failure in our lives as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. Now, um, I'm going to actually ask you to turn back to an Old Testament text to do this. But after we fall spiritually, should we get angry get mad at ourselves? Should we get upset or punish ourselves? Should we be broken regarding our sin? Or should we just get up and press on? Or is it some mixture of those? That is the question that God's Word will answer for us this morning. Uh, Please turn in your Bible to Hosea 14. Hosea chapter 14. And as you do that, may I just review a little bit of the story of this book for you. 
The story of Hosea is an amazing story. And if you don't know much about it this morning, I would encourage you this week to read through the 14 chapters to try to understand it a bit more. The story of Hosea and his book is amazing. The prophet Hosea ministered to the northern tribes of Israel for approximately 50 years. We actually know much more about Hosea than we know about many of the prophets in the Old Testament, including those who wrote books of the Old Testament. Because much of this book has to do with Hosea and his personal life. Of course, as a prophet, Hosea preached the unconditional, steadfast love of God for the people of Israel. And he preached that sermon through his proclamation, but also through his life. Because as you read through this book, one of the things that you'll need to know is that God asked Hosea to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. And Gomer is, of course, the person that he is to commit to. As the Gospel of Luke portrays the prodigal son, gives that story, that narration, the book of Hosea gives the story of the prodigal wife. One commentator described Gomer this way. He said, Gomer was an adulteress, or what was a harlot before marriage, and an adulteress after marriage. What you find in the book is, at just about the first opportunity, Gomer runs back to her own filthy lifestyle of immorality and depravity. She drifts so deep into despair that Hosea is able to buy her back at half of the price of a common slave. You see, Gomer was so used, abused, and misused by the lust of this world that she was completely unlovely. Yet, Hosea loves her. As I was reading through this book in preparation for this sermon, I was again astounded at the amazing fact and the amazing way that instead of Gomer disqualifying Hosea from prophetic ministry, she actually became his credentials for it. Because Gomer was a picture of the Israelites' unfaithfulness. The book of Hosea, I believe, is then a series of appeals from the prophet Hosea to the children of Israel, especially the northern kingdoms, where he appeals to them to turn back to the Lord, to return to the Lord. If you read closely, I think you can almost hear his thundering voice as he issues or reminds them of God's judgment. As a matter of fact, I arranged the structure of the book of Hosea around five very clear, distinct judgment texts in the book. Five statements of divine judgment. It's coming. God writes, or Hosea writes, that God will neglect Israel unless they repent. He will take away their grain and wool and all of their financial resources. He will expose their sinfulness and wickedness and lewdness. He will stop all of their celebrations and festivities. It will come to an end. He will ruin their vine tree, their vine or vineyards and their fig trees. And he will punish them thoroughly. 
Some of the most profound judgment texts in this passage actually describe God as a predator who will come down upon the children of Israel unless they repent. So God is like a bear or a leopard or a lion who will tear them in pieces and carry them off into his lair. structure of this book is formed around those powerful statements of judgment. But what I found very interesting, at least the way I organize the book, is that each one of those judgment statements, those five judgment statements, is met by a text of hope. There are five statements of hope in the book as well, where Israel reminds God what is necessary to turn back to God so that God might protect them and love them and nurture them and care for them. As we turn to Hosea 14, this is that last statement of hope that God, through Hosea, gives to Israel and he shows them exactly what they must do. My perspective as you're reading through here, it's like Hosea's thundering voice, you know, the thundering voice of a prophet, turns into a tender whisper where he pleads with the people, even gives them the words to say. And you go to God, take these words with you. And he shows them how they can find their help in the Lord. Let's look at the text of Scripture, Hosea 14. I'll read verses 1 through 3. Hosea 14, 1 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bowls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this sermon, use our time together in your word, to exalt yourself. Through the person and the work of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Got a pretty simple outline this morning from this story. Uh, It involves three parts. I think Hosea is emphasizing three ways that we can find our help in the Lord. In particular, what I think uh, the the message might be helpful for us together, or helpful for all of us today, is uh, it will be a a means of dealing with sin. And uh, especially after spiritual failures, I believe that that this text of Scripture will show us through God and His relationship to Israel of how we can find our help in the Lord. And so the first thing that Hosea says is that after a spiritual failure... We must turn back to the Lord by confessing our sin. That's why I take Hosea 14, verses 1, and the very first part of verse 2. We must turn back to the Lord by confessing our sin. Uh, If you notice in verses 1 and 2, Hosea uses the word return twice. It's a very common word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's a word that's used two times, of course, in these two verses, but 25 times 
in the entire book of Hosea. So as you're reading through Hosea this week in your devotions, maybe, you'll see this word, return, return, return. And the word simply means repent. Israel as a nation, the northern kingdoms, were to turn back to the Lord, turn away from their sin. He's calling for them to repent in this way. And then the rest, verses 1 and 2, answer two questions about turning back to the Lord. Okay, so uh, in the very next part, he answers why. Why is it necessary for us to turn back to the Lord? Perhaps Israel would say, we are his chosen people. He has covenanted himself to us. So why would we need to return? And Hosea makes that very clear in this text. He's actually made it very clear in the whole book. When he says, you need to return, he says, if you look in the middle of verse 1, he says, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The reason you need to return to the Lord is you have fallen, and you've fallen because of your own iniquity. Now, the word for iniquity here is another common word, which means something like their intentional sin. The Israelite people had fallen to sin. This actually probably shouldn't surprise us very much. They were, they were kind of good at this. If you read through the book of Numbers, especially the second half, you can see that they're continually falling into sin. But Hosea reminds them here as a people, you need to go back to God because you've fallen, because of your sin. This should not only not surprise us about Israel, it should not surprise us about any human being. The last several weeks before I came here, I've been writing a chapter on a dissertation, and I've been in Romans chapter 3. Now, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but I've been going through all of the text in Romans 3 where Paul keeps quoting the Old Testament scriptures. He goes to psalm after psalm after psalm, and then to the book of Isaiah to prove that every human being is a sinner. Maybe you remember some of these verses. He says things like, There is none righteous... No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All, that's every human being, have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then he kind of summarizes this at the end of Romans 3 in verse 23. And this is a verse perhaps you've heard before. But in Romans 3, 23, he says, For all have sinned and what? fallen short of the glory of God. Every human being is a sinner. And the authors of the New Testament and the Old Testament proclaim this. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22, Paul, the inspiration of the scriptures, said that you could summarize a major theme of the scriptures with three words. He says, the conclusion of scripture is this, colon. Here are the three words. All under sin. Every person who has ever lived other than Jesus Christ is a sinner. And we've fallen because of our sin. Perhaps some of the girls in here are looking for the perfect man. You know, your your knight in shining armor. Uh, But the more you look, the closer you look at all the potential possibilities out there the more you realize this truth, there's no perfect person. You see the scratches, the dents, the holes in the armor of your knight. 
But I would remind you, young ladies, as you're searching for a perfect man, I'd also remind you, there's no perfect girl either, right? Your grandmas might tell you that you're, uh, what, what's the saying, you're made of sugar and spice and everything nice? Ever hear that before? Is that a northern thing? I got something to tell you this morning. Guess what? Your grandma's wrong. <laughs> She's wrong. All are under sin. All humanity is guilty before the Lord. We all sin. That's what we do well. And that is true of Israel in this text as well. He says, you must return to the Lord. The truth was they were far away from God. Have you ever felt far away from God before? If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are far away from God. Text of Scripture repeatedly would tell us things like, you are under the judgment and the wrath of God. And you will spend an eternity in hell unless you believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life on this planet. And he died on a cross suffering the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And unless you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, you are far from him. It's been my prayer in preparation for the sermon that if you do not know Christ as your Savior this morning, that you would simply confess your sins to the Lord and believe on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that offers you eternal life in heaven with God. Perhaps as well, there there may be some believers here, though, who feel far away from God. Maybe you've not had a good week, or a good month for that matter. You've fallen into sin again. As a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ, How should we respond to the feeling of being far away from God? I've got two responses. You could jot these down if you want and think about them. We could talk about them at some point. I'd I'd first respond to a believer that would come to me for counsel. I respond to myself after a spiritual failure and remind myself that my sin is covered by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 7, Paul's entertaining how we might deal with sin in the power of our own flesh. But then in the very next verse, as a conclusion to Romans 7, in Romans 8, 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Christ's blood covers all of our sins. It's all sufficient. But I would then also add to that this idea that sin does or can temporarily disrupt our fellowship with God the Father. Or our sweet communion with Him. Yesterday in my devotions, I was reading through 1 John chapter 1. Again, you don't need to turn there. But in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, John says this. He says, this is a message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light 
And in him is no darkness at all. Can we agree on that? God is light, no darkness in him at all. But if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Listen to verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin can temporarily disrupt our fellowship or sweet communion with God. And so how do we respond? I blew it this week. I blew it last month. As a New Testament believer, I'm not Israel, but as a New Testament believer in Jesus, how should we respond? I think that's where Hosea can help us. Turn in your Bible at the second question he asks, he answers about returning to the Lord. And this question, he's answering the question, how? In the middle of verse 2, he says, Say to him, say to God, take away all iniquity. See that in your Bible? Okay, so Hosea is putting words into the, the, the corporate people of Israel, saying, these are the words you need to say. When you go to God, the first thing you say is, take away all our iniquity. I believe these words in verse 2 are words of they must acknowledge their failures. One commentator that I really like on Hosea said it this way. He said, this petition, that take away all our iniquity, this petition admit, admits guilt before the Lord and accepts the blame. Again, some of you might say, well, that was for Israel in the Old Testament, New Testament believers in Jesus. Maybe we don't need to confess our sins and acknowledge them before the Lord. But... I would say to you, you really need to look at how the New Testament authors use the book of Hosea in the, in the New Testament scriptures. The New Testament authors repeatedly go to the book of Hosea and they use it. Not just its words of prophetic utterance, but they'll also at times take the commands or the imperatives that God gave to Israel and they will apply them to the church. Places in your New Testament. Yes, New Testament authors understood that Christ's work is sufficient and covers all of our sins, but they also speak from time to time in the New Testament of, of the need for believers to acknowledge and confess their sins to the Lord for His forgiveness and the restoration of their ongoing walk with God. And so after a spiritual failure, I start with this point. We must turn back to the Lord by confessing our sins. But then I would invite you to, 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 to consider the second point of this text. And that is, we must also then appeal to God and his gracious nature. Okay, now for this, I want you to look at the last part of verse 2. Look down again in the text of Scripture. I'm reading this morning, in case you're wondering, I probably should have said, I'm reading from the ESV translation. And I will probably use that, uh, unless you, like, really hate it. And you can come tell me uh, on the side. But it's a translation I do enjoy. The very next phrase in my ESV Bible is, Accept what is good 
and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Now, some of you are reading from different translations. That little phrase, except what is good, might be taken in, in, in another way as well. In some versions of the scripture, it will say something like, receive us graciously. New King James, for instance, I looked at that this morning, receive us graciously. And that really reveals that there are two ways you can take that little phrase, except what is good. It might be that what Hosea means by this is accept what is good. This implies that it would be a good thing for God to accept their confession of iniquity. Okay, so imagine Israel here. They're praying to God, take away all of our sins and accept the good. The good would be their confession and acknowledgement of their sins. God, accept this. Take this. And, uh, of course, that is a very good possibility Um, I think perhaps it might give a little bit too much credit to the confession itself and the value. And to me, it's just a little bit illogical because, you know, it's like he's saying, they're saying, take away all our iniquity and take what is good. So I prefer, like the New King James has said it, I would translate these two Hebrew words as accept us graciously or receive us graciously. Graciously, accept us in accordance with your gracious nature or in a gracious way. These two words, often when they're used together, I think could be translated that way. Receive us or accept us in accordance with your gracious nature, O God. See, one of the reasons I chose to preach on this text from the Old Testament in my first sermon is I wanted you to see that even in the Old Testament, People like Hosea knew how much sinners need God's grace. There's another place I think of this in the Old Testament scriptures. I'm going to invite you to turn back to Psalm 51 for a moment. Of course, many of you know this psalm, Psalm 51. I'm not going to offer a lot of comment on it. I just want to read it to you. At the end, I'll say some things about this text Of course, Psalm 51, Psalm number 50, is an appeal from David, King David, for God to forgive him of his sin. And it's an appeal that comes after his sin with Bathsheba, committed adultery with a married woman, and then he arranged for her husband to be killed. And then a prophet by the name of Nathan comes and confronts him about this sin. Now listen to David, Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Sounds like Hosea a bit. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's skip down to verse 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Just about there in Hosea, where Hosea says, if God will receive them graciously, they'll render up the sacrifice of their lips uh, in praise to God. And David says, if you forgive my sins, I will offer up praise to you. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Especially in verses 16 and 17, as you consider those in the text. David declares, I believe, that he realized that the daily sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant couldn't help him. There was no daily sacrifice that you could offer for premeditated murder and adultery. And so what does David do? As an Old Testament Israelite, under the Mosaic Covenant, he goes outside of the Mosaic Covenant and he appeals to the grace of God. God, I know there are no sacrifices that you would be pleased with. I can't offer enough bulls or goats to be accepted by you. But David appeals to the gracious character of God and his mercy in the Old Testament. And he says something like Hosea says to Israel, Oh God, accept us graciously. So what should we do after a spiritual fall? Or spiritual failure. You blew it this week. What should you do? Go to God. Say, God, take away all my sin. And receive me in accordance with your grace. Of course, we have to say, as believers in our era, the grace for us that's sourced in Jesus Christ. There's one last point I want to make for you. So go back to Hosea 14 and verse 3. After spiritual failures, we should turn back to the Lord by confessing our sins. We should appeal to God and His gracious nature and character. And then third, finally, we must reject false means or methods of dealing with our sin and the consequences of our sin. Look with me at verse 3. He says, uh, and and this is again, Hosea putting words in Israel's mouth. As we say to God, say, say this to him, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say anymore to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in you, God, the orphan finds mercy. In verse 3, we come to objects of Israel's false dependence. God's judgment comes upon them, and it's severe. They might be tempted to respond in one of these ways. The mention of Assyria is, is I think, a, a mention of a, a, of a foreign nation or a false alliance that Israel might make in an effort to deliver or save themselves from the consequences of their sins. 
very next phrase, when he talks about the horses, I think he's describing military strength or their own fleshly strength as corporate Israel. And Hosea is reminding them that horses won't deliver you. We won't ride on horses either. Our own military strength can't get it done. And then the next phrase, you look down in verse 3 in your Bible, and when he says, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands, I think he's describing idols here. Things made with their own hands. And with this trilogy, Assyria, horses, and idols, Hosea admonishes them to abandon every other way they might be tempted to cope with their sin and the consequences of their sin. All these other things, nations, military strength, false gods that we carved and we fashioned, they can do nothing for us. God, you've got to do it. So Israel must reject improper ways of dealing with their sins. But we too must reject improper ways of dealing with our sin. A moment of pastoral application here might ask you to reflect upon how you normally deal with sin or sin patterns in your life. Over the years, I have seen, not only in my own life, also in the lives of those I've ministered to, many false ways or means of trying to deal with our sins as believers. I think many times, this is my preferred method, we ignore it. We ignore it until God gets our attention about it. Whether through our conscience, through the word of God, or through some sort of loving chastisement to train us as a believer. I think other ways we're tempted to respond to sin in the wrong way. I think often, even as a New Testament believer in Christ, I mean, salvation was all about the grace of God. I find that many times... In this moment of application, like many times we resort back to trying to earn it. Okay, so imagine you had a violent outburst, or at least, an, maybe not violent, an outburst this week. And you were angry. You got angry again. So what do you do? You think something like this. You know, if I'm good enough... For long enough, maybe God will accept me, accept me back. What's the problem with thinking, if I'm good enough for long enough, God will accept me? All kinds of problems with it, right? One significant one, I thought, the danger of that is we're too confident in our own works. And that's not how forgiveness works with God. None of us will ever be good enough for long enough for God to accept us. If I could just like go six days without getting angry at the kids again, then of resolution. No, it's a false means of dealing with sins. Or we try to punish ourselves thoroughly so that God might forgive us. This is true of us even as believers time to time. We think, if I punish myself for long enough or severe enough, then God will accept me back into his favor. 
Ever thought that way before, or is it just the preacher? What's the danger with thinking, if I punish myself for long enough, then God might forgive me? Think about how we live the Christian life. I think one of the dangers with that statement, although there's many, again, the danger is that we tend to then live in spiritual misery. You, know, you, can, you can pick these Christians out of the crowd because they're constantly punishing themselves. There's no joy. You know, I can't crack a smile. Why? Well, because I sinned last week and I'm just I'm sober about this. The scriptures do speak of having a broken and contrite heart. This past Sunday at Fourth Baptist, I was in Sunday school, or uh, we call it uh, Adult Bible Fellowship. Here it's Adult Bible Studies. And the teacher was going through Nehemiah chapter 8. Remember in that chapter, uh, they're reading the scriptures to the congregation, and Israel perhaps hasn't heard the scriptures read for some time. They're, they're reading from the law of Moses. And how do they respond to that reading? They're all standing and listening with their heads bowed to the ground, their arms lifted up, and they, re- they respond with fear and anxiety at the beginning. Nehemiah 8 and verse 10, then they're encouraged. It says, and do not be grieved any longer, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, they're convicted, greatly convicted about disobeying the law of Moses. And Nehemiah reminds them, don't continually be grieved by this, but lift up your heads and rejoice and exalt because the joy of the Lord is your strength. These approaches to sin are wrong. Can't ignore it. Can't punish myself for long enough. Can't be good enough for long enough. They're wrong. They're flesh-centered. They're a lie of the devil. And they're an attack on the grace of God. After spiritual failure this week, what should you do? Simply repent. Depend on God's grace. Appeal to him in his grace. Accept, receive us graciously. And reject false ways of dealing with your sin. And come to God, as the end of verse 3 says, as the fatherless do, as an orphan might. Go to God as one who understands that he or she is completely incapable of delivering themselves. We're vulnerable. We're like orphans. We need a father. Go with nothing in your pockets. No way to deal with your sin other than through the grace of God found in the person of Christ. As we close this morning, I want to tell you about a man, a friend of mine, I once served alongside of. By all appearances, he was a godly man, and he was a great Bible teacher. Students thoroughly enjoyed his teaching. Yet this man, one day, sinned in a pretty significant way. To this day, however, as far as I know, 
he will not forgive himself. He struggles with severe depression. The last time I talked with him, he was communicating thoughts of suicide. And he keeps on punishing himself. My knowledge, he's never turned back to the Lord. May I encourage you this morning with these words of hope, after your spiritual failure, return to the Lord, run back into the arms of a gracious God who can forgive you because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we have worked through a text about your children in the Old Testament age, the children of Israel. And we've noticed Hosea's counsel to them about how to respond to their sin. And as a New Testament church, as we reflect upon how you, through Hosea, conveyed to them to return to God, to appeal to your grace, and to reject false means and ways of dealing with our sins. Lord, perhaps we as well, as New Testament believers in Christ, have been challenged or convicted about the way we deal with sin. May this church, Father, be a church that seeks your face for help with our sin. And would you give us the grace to live in pure and holy ways so that the world might know the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond now with this song together.